Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White, joined today by Dr. Bob Larson, Dr. Philip Lancaster, and Dr. Brian Lubbers. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Morning, Brad. Hey, Brad. Happy to have you with us and happy to have you with us listening as well. And as always, we appreciate you sending us those listener questions or other thoughts. You can always send us an email at bci at ksu.edu. And we've got one of those questions that we're going to talk about today relative to cattle coming off a drought area, coming back to a different area and how do we kind of refresh them, get them ready to go. We'll also talk a, a little bit about how could we eliminate preg loss or what is the level of pregnancy loss that we have specifically that early embryonic loss? And then we're going to follow up a little more. We've had a conversation last week on internal parasites and we actually had quite a few more questions today. We're going to talk about what's the best route of administration relative to giving antiparasiticides topical, injectable, oral, how are we going to do it? Before we get into those topics, guys, the other week, uh, we had a, we put the nutritionist on the hot seat. So today, Larson and Lubers, it's you uh, guys, the vets on the hot seat for the good. top quiz, but it's a picture quiz. It's a picture okay. quiz. Okay. They won't okay. be able to see it online, but I have here an instrument from the 1930s and 40s. Can you identify this instrument? Looks like a pair of pliers, but on the end of it, there's a piece of cork on one side and there's a sharp object on the top side. Hmm. I thought it looked like a, uh, a hog ring placement. Pliers, uh, but... You guys are right. Species, Brian. Uh, no, for, for those that can't see it, it, it looks like it almost looks like an ear notch that we yeah. use in cattle, but I, I not, uh, this isn't fair. Bob, Bob was around in the 1940s <laughs> and I wasn't, so I don't, I don't know what that is. It's a snoot slitter, a snoot oh. slitter for hogs to keep them from digging. Gotcha. All right. I was on the right track. Come on. <laughs> you were. I got one more. Here you go, right. Bob. You're the repro guy. So what we have here are two instruments they're both about 18 to 20 inches long. One of them is a long rod with a ball on an end and a pointed part on the other end. The other looks like a pair of hemostats, if you're familiar with those, a pair of medical pliers, except they're about 20 inches long. Wow. Uh, Bob, this is stereo, man. Well, I was going to say it looks kind of like a Buner needle, but I don't know no. if that's right. Um, so it what is it like is the is the needle hollow nope it's not a needle it's it's blunted it looks pointy but it's blunted on the end who among us knows uh i don't you've stumped me i hate being stumped so those are cervical forceps and an opening device that they used in mares Uh that stopped stopped being used before the 1960s. Well, see, there's my excuse. So, so yeah. <laughs> so you just you just That's missed my that. excuse too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So those are those are my two stump the vet stump ones, the and vet. I've got I've got more, but I'm not going to go into them today. And and it's it's interesting looking at some of the old veterinary tools because certainly have changed over over time, and neither of those we would even consider using today. But I wanted to jump into this listener question. And Philip, this is right up your alley. So we had a great question here. And and I'm going to break it into two parts and we'll address another part later. One part of it was bringing cattle on to fescue, right? So we'll address that on a future podcast. 
But today I want to talk about uh, bringing heifers, bred heifers, from an area where they were in a drought. They've lost some body condition. Uh, they've, they're hopefully bred, have been with the bull. What, what do we do when they get home to kind of let them bounce back and get in the groove? I'm going to jump in and ask Philip a question. So I'm thinking, and, and so help me frame this. If I've got pregnant heifers, I think typically my target is like a pound a day gain while they're pregnant up until the time they calve. That'd get me pretty close to good calving condition. But if they're kind of thin, maybe pound and a half. So, I mean, that that's not, you know, that's not like a three and a half pound daily gain like you'd get from a feedlot diet or a high concentrate diet, but it's still kind it's more than what I do for cows at this time of year. So am I in the right ballpark? Is it kind of that type of a diet? And, and what am I targeting here? Yeah. So, well, you know, we always say that those heifers should calve at about 80% of their mature weight that first time. So, you know, we kind of want to maybe figure that out and figure what gain needs to be. And then we can decide what we need to do nutritionally. Um, you know, if I've got good quality hay, something that's, you know, 58 to 60% TDN, um, if you've had it tested, then, you know, that should get them to gain a pound or so um, per day, and that should be fine. And depending on how much they've lost, if you want to get them back into condition a little quicker, you know, maybe we'll use some supplement like a... Um, a high, highly digestible fiber like soy holes or distiller's grains or wheat mids or something along those lines. Um, but we probably really don't need it. If they're early bred, um, they're going to be spring calvers. We've probably got enough time to get them to where they need to be with some good quality hay. Now, if we don't have that, then that changes the question a little bit and, and what kind of supplement and how much do we need depending on the digestibility of that hay. So would you recommend like doing a forage test on the hay or just use some hay that was put up early or, or how it, so it seems yeah. to me like you're right on the borderline is hay might be good enough. Hay might not be good enough. Yeah. And you are, so you are kind of on the borderline depending on when you got your hay put up and what type of grass it is. Uh, you know, <clears throat> so, I mean, I always recommend testing. I like to know what it is so then I can do some math. Um, but um, if you think that it, is if you get it up, if you got it put up before um, you got seed heads um, mature, it's probably good enough quality. If their seed heads were up and mature, then you probably should get it tested and make sure where it's at to know whether you're going to have what you need to do to get these heifers through to next spring, um, so that they're in the in uh, the right um, body weight and body condition to calve um, next spring. I have a, so I have a question for Bob. So Bob's the repro guy. So do you worry about the implications of too, pushing them too hard on feed or not catching them up quick enough so they're behind in body condition? Do you worry about those on the reproductive? Because these are supposed to be bred heifers, right? So are we worried about either maintaining that pregnancy in thin cows or potentially losing that pregnancy if we push them too hard? Oh, good question. Um, in general, once they're pregnant and they're fairly far along, that mom will protect that pregnancy and not, you know, abort because she gets thin. But she'll have trouble with calvings, more likely to have calving difficulty and more likely to take a long time to resume cycling if she's thin. And on the other side of it, if she gets too fat, she has to get really fat before we get into trouble. So I tend to, I don't worry about 
the types of gains that Philip is talking about, pound, you know, pushing them up to a pound and a half a day, you're not going to get them too fat at that at that speed, um, and and not putting the weight on them that you're not going to lose the pregnancy, but you could run into problems at calving time, a week calving, those types of things. So I certainly think we need to get her up into that good body condition, aiming for that 80% of mature weight, those types of things. But if we're on the border, this would be a time where you said, well, I don't know if I've got good enough hay or not. If they're relatively early in pregnancy, you guys have said before, this is her lowest nutritional need. So if I want to put some weight on her, Great, great time to do it. The, the weather's fine. Give a little bit of supplement. Uh, but it, but what I'm hearing is if you're not sure if the hay is good enough to get there, provide some supplement. And then you can figure out what the right choice there. And, and you're thinking energy or protein, Philip? So a lot of times we talk about, well, I could put some protein out or I could give them something that has some energy in it. Or is it both? But. I mean, obviously, she needs both. I mean, they have a nutritional requirement for both, but it depends, again, it goes back, depends on your hay. You know, if, if you put up a cool season grass hay, it's probably got enough protein in it to have, to meet her needs. If you put up a warm season grass hay, then it might be borderline or, or too low, and you may need a protein supplement. To, to go along with it. Depends on the type of hay you've got and what you're going to do to, to go forward. And Brian, you mentioned, and we, we talked about pregnancy. We had a conversation before the show and we were talking a little bit about pregnancy and pregnancy loss. And, and Bob, one of the things that you brought up was a lot of times when we think of after conception in cattle, many times you don't even get to the time where you know she's pregnant. A lot of those are lost, and it may, it may be because of a variety of reasons, no fault of the cow or the bull. Is that accurate? And, what, and about what percent of those would you say are lost? Yeah, so I think we have to be really careful with the words we use here because um, I'm going to spend a couple of minutes talking about pregnancy loss, but it's not really abortion. It's not because of you know, IBR, BVD, trichomoniasis, those types of abortion-causing diseases or even toxic plants or something like that. This is the loss that occurs just because reproduction is really complex. Building a new mammal out of a couple of cells, a sperm and an egg is really, really hard to do. Um, and so what we think happens is that if you have a cow that's in heat, she's going to ovulate a fertile egg and it's pretty fertile. You know, there's some differences between cows, but it's pretty fertile. And if she's mated by a bull and he's pretty fertile, probably that embryo is started. So, but in those first few days, so, uh, you know, an estrus cycle, a, a heat cycle takes about 21 days. So she's in heat. Well, she has to decide she's pregnant by say day 14 or so after she was in heat in order to then not come in heat again and maintain that pregnancy. So there's a lot happening in that first two weeks. And what we think happens is usually the embryo begins developing but it's so easy to make mistakes as you're copying DNA and all that kind of stuff that about a third of the time um, that embryo takes, it goes for a few days and then I, I guess I'll call it, it dies. It, it goes away. And then what looks like to me, the beef producer or the veterinarian is she comes right back in heat 21 days later and has another chance to get pregnant. So about two thirds of the time she, she gets pregnant and stays pregnant through those first two, three weeks and, and goes on out and has a calf. But about a third of the time, um, 
again, just because, and this isn't because of anything that she's doing wrong or the wrong with the bull. It's just the complexity of building a new calf out of a sperm and an egg. Um, that, that about a third of the time it gets the first few days and then goes, ah, this isn't working quite right. Let's start over again. Um, so about a third of the time that happens. And one of the things that we kind of chatted about is, you know, the, the opportunity for improvement, Bob. So, you know, given, given what you just said is that in any, any given individual animal, any given individual heat cycle, you probably will lose a third of those pregnancies. And we shouldn't even say lose pregnancy, right? We should say pregnancy never happens in a third of those, right? Yeah. If if you want to define pregnancy as really viable, ready to go, yeah, about a third of the time we don't get to that point. So, um, so what, so if we do that, you know, a couple heat cycles, um, we've gotten, you know, if we get two thirds and then two thirds of the other third, you know, we get to what, 80, 90%, mm-hmm. something like that within a couple, it's surely within three heat cycles. So what, what's the opportunity to improve from, let's say a, a pretty, a pretty good managed herd, reproductively managed herd. What's our real opportunity to improve? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And, and where I'm going to take this is because one way to look at it is, man, we lose a third of pregnancies. If we could if we could make that better, if we could cut that in half uh, so that maybe we only lose about, you know, a fourth or so of the pregnancies, wouldn't that be better? And the answer is, of course, it would be. But now it's it's only, you know, so you're moving from 67 percent of the time you get a successful pregnancy to 75 or 76 percent of the time. That's certainly an advantage. Um, but like you pointed out, most in, in most cow herds after two 21 day cycles, when the cow came in heat, gave me a, a fertile egg and got mated by a fertile bull, you know, 85 percent of the time that cow is pregnant within two opportunities and 95 percent of the time after three opportunities. So I, I don't I like the idea of getting a little bit better than that. You're not going to get, you're not going <laughs> to, I'm not going to double my pregnancy uh, percentage because I'm already at 90, 95. So that the chance to be a little bit better is there. Um, and, and so as a researcher, I'm interested in that. As a producer or a veterinarian, I'm interested in, in doing that. Probably the better important thing is to don't get worse than that. So when I was saying, you know, you've got a fertile cow and a fertile bull, then I've got two thirds of a chance. So the chance to be better than that is a little bit. Oh, the chance to be worse than that is a lot because that can drop all, all the way to zero. So I think from a producer and veterinary standpoint, it's mostly about making sure that we're at least two thirds of the time you get a nice pregnancy. So the cow's in good body conditions. The cow is fertile. Um, she, the bull has been tested and he's fertile. And so do all the things to make sure that we get to kind of that baseline of well, two thirds of the time, this ought to work with a good pregnancy. Now, and you keep, you keep mentioning two thirds of the time and you're talking after an individual breeding, right? Mm-hmm. And during a breeding season, a cow could be bred three times. If she yeah. didn't get bred the first time, if she didn't get pregnant and actually there's some benefit to, and we're saying losing a pregnancy. Well, it's not really what most would call a pregnancy at that point. If the embryo dies before day 14 or day 10, wherever it is, it never really formed. So that's where you're talking about in that time frame. Yeah. And then 
each cycle she has, if she has a two-thirds chance of breeding, and this is what Brian was saying, well, if you've got a, a beef cow and she's got, you've got a 60-day, 65-day breeding season, she's got three chances to be bred. A two-thirds chance times three, you end up doing the math and you end up, you could have 95% of your herd bred. So that was Brian's question is, if I'm there now, where you don't get there, which is what you alluded to, Bob, is that the bull isn't fertile or the cow's not cycling. Yeah. Because what I've heard, non-cycling cows don't breed. You know, they, they really don't. Isn't that amazing? So if, Yeah, if, exactly. And just like infertile bulls don't have offspring. So infertile are, bulls don't have offspring. You don't have to worry about propagating that genetic line no, because don't. They, they don't have any fertile semen. So that, that was excellent. We, we appreciate uh, that discussion. And I think there are some opportunities there for improvement on some herds, but maybe not all herds. So happy to have our parasitologists back, Dr. Heron and Dr. Chelladurai. And we're, we're going to ask them some questions about what are some of the best ways to use our parasiticides. We had Dr. Depp. Dr. Jebba Chelladurai and Dr. Brian Heron, our parasitologist here, on a, a couple weeks ago. And we wanted to talk a little bit more because we had more questions for them. And I know, Bob, one of the things that you brought up and, and we talked about was uh, using type of products and a route of administration. So we wanted to get their opinion. What's best? Should I use topical dewormers? And when I'm trying to control internal parasites, should I use topical? Should I use injectable? Should I use oral? I will say that all the drugs um, that are offered, they're formulated in, in a way that if given correctly, they are meant to control parasites in cattle, right? So when they're, they're labeled, they're given in a specific route uh, and depending on the root, right? It is formulated so that the drug that gets to the worm is an appropriate amount. And so choosing them uh, right up front based on, on what root uh, doesn't necessarily always mean one root is going to be technically more effective, right? They've been made to be effective in the root given. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions from my experience. So a lot of times we, we deworm in the fall and I'm a little concerned. Sometimes I prefer maybe an injectable because I'm concerned that if they've already got a heavy hair coat, maybe my pour on isn't as good. And, and I like the concept of an oral dewormer, but it looks like sometimes the cattle spit a lot out. Are any of my concerns really important or or like you said, are the products really designed? They'll, they'll work even if it's not perfect. Well, if administered properly, they should work. So your concerns are legitimate. So if you think your cattle have a, a very thick hair coat um, and the product is not getting to the skin, then the animal might not be getting the drug like it's labeled. And so then you might have a, a presumption of ineffectiveness where your animals are still infected despite you giving the product. And it, you're right, so animals like to spit out products, and so an oral formulation versus a topical versus an injectable might just be a preference and what is logistically possible in a given situation. So what you do as a producer might be different from what your neighbor is doing as a producer, um, because if you can part the hair and put your topical product on the skin, that's great. But if you cannot, and if you think that you're, it's easier to inject a product, then maybe you should do an injectable. 
Um, and if you can wrangle your animals to give that oral product at the right dose, that's great. So maybe you should go for the oral. Um, and again, that depends on, as a producer, what is logistically capable of what, you know, in the situation that you have. Both the, both the facilities and, as Bob mentioned, the <laughs> thickness of the hair coat and whether or not we think we can get it there. But if they're spitting it, it, it is formulated for oral administration, but if you don't put it in their mouth, Bob, it's a, it's a no it go is what she's I saying. Just, yeah. I just can't. You can't put I just it on. Can't wave it in front of them. No, you cannot. Or they, or they spit part of it back out after you try to get it in their in their mouth. But, so one of the questions I had though, I, and I, I I'd seen some research studies looking at the effectiveness on the different routes of administration on um, internal parasites, and some of the stuff seemed to point that injectables or orals were more effective. Would, but would that would there be some implications to developing resistance if we're not getting some of those topicals um, dosed correctly? Um, very likely. Um, so if you think of the worms in your animal as a population, some of them are easy to kill, others are harder to kill. So the harder to kill ones are what we call the resistant ones. The easier to kill ones are the ones that are going to be dead, even with a little bit of your antihelminthic. So if it's if that uh, like if the dewormer is not dosed properly, uh, we are killing off that you know susceptible population that's easy to kill, and we are leaving behind the resistant ones. Um, and yeah, I think that's a problem, right? So again, it doesn't really depend on how uh, you're administering the dewormer as long as you're administering it at the right dose. And if you do not, that's a problem with any of the three routes of administration. So, so I want to pick up on that just real quick because you're saying underdosing or not giving enough doesn't matter what route I'm doing it. It it is going to could lead to selection for greater numbers of resistant parasites, which is a problem. And so, if I have for economic considerations, if I said, "Hey, I'm going to give a half dose," it doesn't matter what route I'm going to do it. That's going to be problematic. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. So it's almost like the antibiotics, right? So if you don't give it for the right number of days, you're not getting the benefit that is on the label. So here, if you're not giving it at the right dose, you're not getting the benefit um, or the killing of the parasites that we want to achieve. So, and I think one of the things that you guys have said relative to root of administration, or at least what I've heard is all of them are fine. All of them can work well if they're done as properly indicated. And Bob mentioned a couple of, I mean, the nice thing with an injectable is I have a lot more control over if I get the injection in the animal than necessarily if they have a thick hair coat, I can't control that. If they're gonna spit it out, I, I don't have as good a control over that system. So any of those routes can work. Is that is that accurate, Brian? Yeah, I think uh, just making sure that you're working within your limits. I heard making sure your facilities are set up that you can handle the animals in, in a way to get the doses in, you're administering them correctly, right? And then you may be making your decision based on what specific drug you want to be using and the formulations that are offered or what method, you know, cost. So that's kind of the drug part or what method you prefer to give and, and really when you jump in and say, I want to give an oral product, then it's kind of up to you to make sure that you're administering that product consistently in a way in which all animals are dosed correctly. 
But the other, the other point that you made there is based on how those products are labeled and formulated, we don't want to give an injectable product orally and vice versa, right? So, so we have to make sure that we follow those product labels because they have been formulated and each of them has the right carrier to make it work in the way that it's supposed to. Whether it's going to go through the rumen or it's going to be absorbed through the skin, you have to have the right stuff around the drug itself, even though the drug itself may be the same. So we appreciate you joining us again and great answers on these, these questions. And we're really learning a lot about parasites. Thank you. Well, we appreciate that discussion today and appreciate you joining us for this episode of Cattle Chat. And as always, if you have questions, comments, things you'd like us to talk about on a future episode, you can always send us an email at bci at ksu.edu. 